If you have some knowledge of cinematic history, you're aware that the golden age of Hollywood started to peter out in the 1950s when television became a thing and started chipping away at their revenue. It finally collapsed with the failure of the big budget movie musical, which carried Hollywood from the 30s to the 60s. This is credited to either um, Hello Dolly or Dr. Doolittle or possibly both. Without any other resource to turn to, Hollywood executives started bringing in art school weirdos who had grown up watching films and let them take a crack at it. This started gradually with outliers such as, you know, Mel Brooks and Stanley Kubrick and various other filmmakers who never fit in with the traditional studio system. But young Turks who had gone to film school and had grown up watching movies started getting a crack at it. The weird one in this group is seen as Brian De Palma, which is saying something because this group includes George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola. I knew at some point I was going to cover a new Hollywood film, which is what this era is referred to. Uh, I assumed it was going to be one of the more iconic ones, such as, say, The Godfather or Taxi Driver, but no, we're talking about Phantom of the Paradise first. <laughs> this film is an ambitious failure that got reappraised as a cult classic, which is turning into a favorite for this show. So we're going to be talking about it, taking it apart, putting it back together, and seeing what its legacy is, and it has quite one. Uh, my name is Ryan, this is A Real Deep Dive. Joining me on this episode for her very first outing is my sister Cheryl, the only sibling who hasn't done an episode yet. Hello! I decided to do this one for your maiden outing because Phantom of the Paradise is a very special film uh, to you. Uh, just a moment ago you were talking to me about your first experience with it. Oh yes, I discovered this movie when I was a young teenager. And uh, do I get to say the type of channel that it was on? Yeah, I don't care. Okay, Turner Classic <sighs> Film bought the rights to this movie because it was incredibly cheap uh, and used to do marathons of it where they would do it like a Christmas story all day, just over and over and over again. And I discovered this movie halfway through, probably actually closer to the last half of the movie. And I had no idea what was going on and it was an absolute delight. And then I just got hooked on it ever since. You came in and you needed dad to explain to you what the hell this was and you got transfixed. And as soon as it ended, it started over again. And then you told me that you were just ready to start it again as soon as it ended and dad had to leave. Oh yeah, I watched this movie about three times back to back. The first time I watched it, excluding the like last quarter that I had started with. And I, I still wasn't done with it, but I just wound up passing out. And you have tried to get a number of people in your life into this. You have forced at least five different people to watch this with you, and none of them were into it. Uh, it's true. Only um, my husband and you are the only people that have given me positive feedback after I've begged them or tricked them into watching it. Yeah, despite the fact that you're super into this, I haven't seen it the whole way through until just today. This is the first time I saw it front to back. I I've only seen a few isolated scenes before this. Oh, yes. I got the DVD of this because I bought it actually as our for our father as a Father's Day gift quite a few years ago because I thought we had bonded and having seen this movie, but he was so disinterested in it that he gave it back to me. <laughs> and then a few years ago, like just a few years past, my husband bought the Blu-ray and we were both transfixed by the concept that somebody made a Blu-ray of this. <laughs> 
its cult audience has been steadily growing, especially lately, but we'll be talking about that later. Now, if you're going into this completely blind, oh, faithful listener, as the title implies, this is a riff on the Phantom of the Opera, but they also slip some Faust and uh, a Susan of the picture of Dorian Gray in there. You have to break it down into the plot. The main character is composer-singer Winslow Leach. He is approached by uh, Arnold Filden, the right-hand man of a record producer named Swan. Swan is this almost messianic figure who's been behind the wheels of every movement in pop for the past three decades. Winslow is told that his music is perfect for the paradise, Swan's highly anticipated new concert hall. And then Swan has Philbin steal Leech's music under the pretense of producing it, because Leech is an awkward nerd and there's no way he'll be a rock star, you can buy odd Elton John paradigms of it. The incredibly naive Winslow goes to Swan a month later to follow up on his deal and is roughly ejected. He then sneaks into Swan's private mansion and observes several women rehearsing his material. He bumps into a singer named Phoenix and recognizes her as the perfect conduit for his own artistic genius. Uh, You know, they bond together over, you know, making music together and that sets things up for later. After Winslow is ejected again, it finally dawns on him that Swan has stolen his music for the Paradise opening. Winslow then disguises himself as a woman to infiltrate Swan's circle in an orgy. He is then quickly beaten up and then framed for drug dealing. He's given a life sentence and sent to Sing Sing Prison. Yeah, in an attempt to cut down on inmate infections, at least as a pretext, Winslow's teeth are removed and replaced with metal dentures. This is because of a grant from the Swan Foundation, by the way. Six months later, Winslow hears that the Juicy Fruits, who are patterned after a 50s doo-wop group, they're about to make a record out of one of his songs with Swan's backing. An enraged Winslow just has a fit in the prison, jumps inside a box, and then somehow escapes despite the fact that like 80 people are looking at him while he's doing it. He immediately rushes into Swan's Death Records headquarters in order to destroy the records. However, a guard startles Winslow, and he ends up falling face-first into a record press which crushes half of his face, burns the rest, and ruins his vocal cords. He barely escapes the police by leaping into the East River, and everyone assumes that he's dead. Disoriented as well as deformed, Winslow begins haunting the paradise in a black cloak and owl mask. He nearly kills the beach bums, who are the juicy fruits, after shifting their image to more of a beach boy surf music type of thing. He plants a bomb in a car and kills a whole lot of people who aren't swan. He then confronts Swan, however smooth operator that he is. Swan promises him that from here on out, his music is going to be produced and performed as he intended. Then signs a contract in blood, which he doesn't find that suspicious. He's still a little bit naive. He's then operated upon and given a voice box that distorts his speaking. And when he sings, he sounds exactly like Swan. Winslow wishes to have Phoenix perform his cantata about the life of Faust, but Swan resents Phoenix's perfection because he only wants perfection in himself and doesn't want to see it in others. I mean, who can blame him, though? Yeah, yeah, you know, Paul Williams is just the epitome of human perfection. He is Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian man. (laughs) He assigns the lead role, out of spite, basically, to Beef, a drug-addled glam rock prima donna who speaks in one of those, like, fey wisps that you only hear in guys in 70s movies who are supposed to be gay. I'm going to interrupt you 
because Beef, or Captain Beef, as he's only referred to in the ending credits and nowhere in that movie, uh, is my favorite character in the entire film. So he was rightfully given the part. He is a genuinely good person, and we'll go into that later. Hashtag Beef did nothing wrong. That's right. At this point, the Phantom, you know, Winslow has been holed up in the recording studio doing nothing but writing all day. He's being locked in there, possibly without his knowledge. It's a little hard to figure out because Swan just keeps feeding him pills. Once the cantata is finished, Swan seals Winslow in this small room behind a brick wall. However, since the bricks didn't have time to set, as soon as Winslow spies something afoot, he escapes and confronts Beef in a shower sequence very reflective of Psycho, except replacing a knife with a plunger. We will be talking about Brian De Palma's uh, weird fixation on Hitchcock later on. He threatens to kill Beef if he performs in the show, and Beef wants to run away, but he's pressured by Philbin into joining the Undeads, which is the Juicy Fruits, rebranded yet again as a sort of glam death rock act. Beef performs on a stage that is very reminiscent of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. When he's introduced, he emerges from the coffin the way that Caesar does. However, this is crossed with, you know, makeup from Kiss, and there's a whole lot of David Bowie going on, in case you couldn't tell from everything I've said up to this point. (laughs) Beef sings with the undeads, but he is killed by the phantom who throws a stage prop at him and electrocutes him. Philbin rushes out Phoenix as a last-moment replacement, and she's an instant sensation. Later on, Swan seduces Phoenix with promises of stardom, although he doesn't seem really too into the canoodling until he knows for a fact that Winslow is watching them. Winslow spirits Phoenix to a rooftop and tries to reveal his identity and backstory, but she doesn't believe him. She thinks that Winslow is dead, and she has stars in her eyes. She thinks she's going to be a sensation. Now, Winslow attempts suicide after he sees Phoenix and Swan's embrace, but at this point he learns that he can't die unless Swan does because the contract is supernatural. He then tries to kill Swan, but Swan's under contract too and cannot die. A spinning newspaper of all things (laughs) (laughs) informs the audience that Phoenix and Swan are engaged to be married at the finale of Faust performance. Winslow sneaks into Swan's lair, which is curiously easy for him to do, and by looking at archival footage, realizes that Swan made a pact with the devil in 1953. The devil is also played by Paul Williams. It is an adorable sequence. And the basic logistics of the deal is that Swan is eternally young, and he will age in the recording, but will not in the real world unless the recordings are destroyed. So he needs to guard them very carefully, getting back to the fact that Winslow sneaked in without much trouble. And he has to watch them every day, which is totally not Dorian Gray at all. This is totally original. Don't worry about it. Yeah, Winslow then sees recordings of his own contractual signing and a similar one with Phoenix, who had been plied with drugs and alcohol. She's basically stoned for the entire rest of the film. Yeah, Winslow then figures out that Swan is planning to have Phoenix killed at the ceremony because that'll be popular. He then smashes the recordings by setting them on fire because they're all videotaped, which is extremely flammable, and rushes out. At the ceremony, Winslow defects an assassin shot, killing Philbin instead of Phoenix. He was the bishop at the marriage. Winslow then pulls off Swan's mask, uh, revealing that he is just hideously deformed. An infuriated Swan attempts to strangle Phoenix, but is stabbed by Winslow. 
This results in Swan slowly dying and also Winslow's wounds reopening. Winslow pulls his mask off, revealing his face to Phoenix, and she finally recognizes him as the kind man that she briefly met at Swan's mansion, and he dies in her arms. The end. And I mean, there you go. That's a, a true, beautiful movie classic right there. What more could you want? All right, singling out the production of this film, as I said earlier, is based on Gaston LaRue's 1910 Phantom of the Opera. There are no shortage of film adaptations of this book. This is one of them. However, they also throw in Oscar Wilde's 1890 The Picture of Dorian Gray, particularly in the contractual sequences, and The Faust Legend, both uh, Christopher Marlowe's stage rendition and the epic poem I Goeth. And it's all just sort of mishmashed together. Everything I've seen about this film... Like, Brian De Palma is credited as the writer and director, but you said it originated with another person who uh, saw it as a sort of a passion project, and De Palma just kind of spirited it away from her, which is very swan of him. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, originally there was a woman involved in the writing, like, very strongly, but at some point there was a huge disagreement, and she wound up um, leaving the production, and they had to do a few emergency rewrites, and I... Credit that to the reason why some characters' names don't match up in the film with what they are in the um, in the ending credits. I did read that the supernatural components of the film were introduced in one of the later drafts, so that might have been the source of contention. That wouldn't surprise me. I also know that um, uh, a good portion of it had to be like furiously edited uh, towards the end of it between that and the lawsuit. Uh, yeah, we'll, we will be talking about the lawsuit as we go further into the production details of this. Fan of the Paradise was an independent film. It was made with independent financing and then later auctioned off to uh, major film studios for distribution. 20th Century Fox got the rights for $2 million. Lots of little factoids I picked up over this. The more um, interesting ones is that, for instance, the part where Winslow is disfigured by the uh, record press, that was a legit press. It was apparently designed to make toys, and they had put some safeguards in to keep it from actually hurting anyone, but the safeguards failed, and uh, William Finley was almost killed in that scene. Which was pretty much traumatizing to find out after having, like, pretty practically worshipped this movie for a decade to see that that man is not just a talented actor and that is genuine terror on his face as he's about to be crushed to death. So thank you for ruining a small portion of my childhood. If it helps, Finley had fond feelings of this film for the remainder of his life. I, I said before he showed up at Phantom Palooza, but that for later on in the episode. Now, the film was shot at the Majestic Theater in Dallas for the concert sequences. Uh, the recording studio was shot at a real recording studio, the Record Plant, which is where the Eagles made Hotel California, which if you like the Eagles is an interesting fact, but I do not. I love that. I mean, I love that song. I'm sorry, it does nothing for me. I guess I'll live with that. Yeah, you're going to have to. <laughs> now, the uh, set decoration for this was handled by Sissy Spacek, who was helping out her boyfriend, later on her husband. Apparently, she got very chummy with Brian De Palma because he cast her in Carrie later on. Oh, really? I had no idea. That might explain why there's, there are so many superfluous hallways built inside of hallways. That also has something to do with uh, De Palma's quirks, but we'll, we'll be getting back to that. As Cheryl intimated earlier, this film got sued. Initially, Swan's record label, which is referred to in the film as Death Records, was called Swan Song Enterprises, but... <laughs> 
If you're a music buff, you already know that Led Zeppelin's publishing company is called that, and all of that had to be removed from the film. Some of it very awkwardly. Like, this is very obvious, like, airbrushed over bit during some scenes. Yeah, you can see a little dead bird floating around. Sometimes it's just a black rectangle that isn't even, like, even on the edges. If somebody took, like, I don't know, uh, MS Paint or something, it was just, like, ee, ee, over the film. It's, uh, it's, it's nice. It's classy. Yeah, I tried to find some information over the fact that Rod Serling does the introduction of this film, but I, I couldn't find any information about it. I think everybody just sort of cherishes that fact and lets it just exist because any explanation for it would be a little bit less wonderful than just the majesty and the shock of this movie starts with that. Yeah, Rod Serling does a little Twilight Zone intro to Fan of the Paradise before you see anything, aside from the Dead Bird logo. So, uh, with that being the setup of the film for you, do you think that it met those expectations moving forward? It does sort of have that Twilight Zone thing where it, it subverts the narration because Serling doesn't directly tell you what's up. He's just like, Swan is an important record producer, and this is about the monster who stole his music. And he's technically not lying, but he's not telling you everything now, is he? Mm -hmm. It's true. And then um, I was talking to you about this earlier, but if you look at the movie poster, which I'm a sad enough fan that I have the movie poster for this film, it quotes the Sterling introduction. Not only do you have the poster, but it, you told me it wasn't a legit poster. Like, you, you, you cut it out of an issue of Fangoria. It was a centerfold, and Fangoria likes to give you horror movie classic posters. So it's not that it's not a legitimate poster. It just has staple marks in it. <laughs> right, right, right. All right, let's get into the cast of it. Uh, William Finley is both Winslow Leach and The Phantom. Uh, he's a Brian De Palma regular. If you look at the first seven or eight years of De Palma's directorial career, Finley is always there somewhere, and he commits to the bit. Oh, he does a phenomenal job, and you can tell he's a little bit nervous in his singing parts, but I think he sells it. Yeah, his lip syncing is awkward. He's just rolling his head back <laughs> and forth, and he's sort of forming the words. It's like trying to see a Charlie Brown, Snoopy-esque kind of dance, but if you're on a piano bench the whole time pretending to play the piano, if you put that together with a human being, that's kind of what you're seeing. Yeah, he's barely pretending to play that piano. He seems more comfortable when he's the deformed phantom monster wearing the owl mask. I mean, when you have a cape, there's just a certain level of class and flair there. The scene sells itself. Now, the real star of the film, Paul motherfucking Williams as Swan and also the Phantom singing voice. Now, if you don't know who Paul Williams is, you know who Paul Williams is. Uh, if you're familiar with Batman the Animated Series, he voiced the Penguin. He keeps showing up in all these random roles of Baby Driver. He's an arms dealer. He's in one of the Planet of the Apes sequels as an orangutan. He's wrote a bunch of pop songs. David Bowie did a couple of them, most notably Kooks on Hunky Dory, which I adore that song. That is so cute. I didn't know that. I was like, oh, it's because it's about a, about a baby. And it's like, Oh, it's so fucking cute. I'm sorry for saying. I just swore a moment ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's most closely associated with the Muppets. He guested in one of the episodes. He wrote a whole bunch of the songs. He wrote Rainbow Connection, which is the best Muppet song. And he wrote the entire score for Muppet Christmas Carol. So if you're a millennial child with Christmas traditions, Paul Williams is familiar to you, whether you know his name or not. He's in your heart. He's been there the whole time. It's okay. Open yourself up to the joy and the bliss 
that is the Phantom of the Paradise, which is his child. It's part of his baby. This film is just this little satanic goblin with a <laughs> w w w floppy hair and a reptilian type of nature to himself. And you don't really see him until the second act. And the first you just see his hands like doing slow clapping and gesturing to people who are on screen. You have to understand and appreciate that when you do finally get to see him, not as like a shadowy figure, he looks like a 50-year-old divorcee. That is entirely his fashion sense, but with like a Bon Jovi wig, and it's phenomenal. He sells this movie harder than anyone else because he also wrote all the songs in it, and that's a rock opera. Yeah, and yeah, your enjoyment of Phantom of the Paradise depends almost entirely on how you feel about Paul Williams' performance because they're, everyone else is just sort of central casting. Yeah, they're pretty much just props around his genius. But also, if you're familiar with other rock operas that were out at the time, you really can't say that this movie was worse than them. Because there is a running theme throughout the movie. It might be a little disguised. It might get confused and lost as it goes through. But it sticks to what it's trying to be. At the end of the movie, you can argue that this was a representation of Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, there was a bit of a zeitgeist in the mid-1970s where rock operas were turned into film musicals. Apparently, they were still trying to make musicals happen, even though the classical Hollywood Golden Age mode had run out with, as I mentioned before, uh, Hello, Dolly! and Dr. Doolittle cratering. You know, so for, for a hot minute, they were just like, hey, what about rock operas? And then, you know, the year after Phantom of the Paradise, both Rocky Horror Picture Show and Tommy came out. And I, it is easy to lump all three of those films together because they do have a similar vibe and similar things that they're going for. But we can talk a bit about, uh, about that more in the thematic part of this episode. Right, and for Phoenix, we have Jessica Harper, which is, this is her first role. You might know her best as the protagonist of Suspiria. She also has a cameo in the remake. I had, I'm sorry, I'm stunned in silence. I didn't know that she had a career after this movie. No, she's been working consistently for the past five decades. That's amazing. Good for her. I really liked her in this, except for the, uh, I mean, actually, I really enjoyed her awkward dancing because she has my dance moves. She almost does the Mick Jagger chicken dance until Beef does the Mick Jagger chicken dance in his death scene. In like Nine Inch Heels, the man's wearing crazy Elton John platforms, uh, circling back to Tommy, which you were talking about. So just sort of try to picture that, but in like snake leather pants. Yeah, yeah, Harper is delightful in this. She she's playing an ingenue and like I said, central casting, but she sells it. The, the way she you know throws her little hat off her head while she's singing her little heart song and you know, she <laughs> dances about the stage completely off beat and she's just throwing herself in there. She really cares and it comes across and I will also argue that she's my favorite representation of Christine from the Phantom of the Opera story. Yeah, moving on to your favorite representation of various Phantom analogs, Garrett Graham as Beef, although Raymond Lewis Kennedy did his singing voice. Oh, that's my... Car so he's Carlotta, and in the credits of the film, he's referred to as Captain Beef, which is a big point for me because he's never once referred to as Captain anything in the entire movie. So I was incredibly startled when I saw the Captain Beef, and I feel like this man deserves his Captain title back. Captainship? I don't, I don't know what the correct term is. Hashtag Beef did nothing wrong. Give him back his captaincy. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 
I want to say that captaincy is the word for that. And uh, even though he's playing this total swishy stereotype, which, you know, considering my background, I should find personally offensive, I'm into it. And, you know, the, the whole part where he's, you know, singing his little gothic death rock song, he's just falling over and slamming his heels into the stage. And it's like, he's, he's going for it. And he's got that Frankenstein makeup. And he genuinely cares. Out of all of the people in this film, he's the only one that's like, I need to respect a dead man's wishes. He's the only Carlotta who seems to respect the artistry. Right? He's not ready to be done. He's just experienced. He cares about his background singers. He cares about everybody. He's trying to pull everybody into the performance. He's genuinely a sweetheart. And the last person I want to talk about is uh, George uh, Mamolia's Arnold Philbin, uh, Swan's right-hand man. He's this big, beefy dude who kind of looks like Meatloaf, but not really. He's often wearing denim on denim. I was gonna say that! He's mostly fine, but the reason I'm bringing him up is because the character's name is derived from Mary Philbin, who played Christine in the 1925 Phantom. That's really sweet! They're like, we're gonna honor you with this really upsetting fat rapist. Yeah, Brian De Palma likes making references to older films. I mean, all of the Hollywood brats do, Spielberg especially, but De Palma even more especially. Now, the film's reception, uh, I was expecting it to get almost universally negative reviews, but they were mixed. Some people really hated it because they thought it was, you know, tonally jarring and ostentatious and over-the-top and melodramatic, but some people were into it, but they liked the, the, the colorful creative direction and the flamboyancy and the references to film history because movie nerds are always into that. Well, the cinematography, um, especially in the shots where Winslow uh, is about to go on his rampage and then afterwards when Winslow's midst rampage are actually really impressive. What they do with the arches, um, what they do with the building, uh, especially the steps beforehand at the Swan Building and then the steps afterwards at Death Records. It makes the whole establishment itself feel like an extra character. We'll be also talking about the Palma cinematography techniques and the, and the thematic bits. Uh, the film was a box office bomb, except in Winnipeg. It was a big hit in Winnipeg, Manitoba. It ran in theaters in that city until 1976, two years after its initial release. People just couldn't get enough of it. Those are my people. They understand my heart song. The soundtrack went gold in Canada, and 20,000 copies were sold in Winnipeg alone. I have purchased a copy of this soundtrack, so I feel that. I would have purchased two if it wasn't entirely unreasonable. But it's not an unreasonable price when you look for it. Yeah, Phantom of the Paradise was also fairly popular in Paris, which I'm sure Brian De Palma sees as legit points. I have no problem. I can't even... Okay, cool. That's nice. Yeah, the film did get an o Oscar nomination for Best Original Song, and it won a Golden Globe for its score. Which songs, you know? No, I couldn't find it out. I hope it's the really petty ending theme song that has nothing to do with the movie. That's pretty much my favorite song. You did mention that already. Also, several years later, Paul Williams went on the Brady Bunch Hour... And sang a performance of The Hell of It. That's my favorite song! Yeah. That's the one! Yeah, yeah, he sang that on The Brady Bunch. The, not the sitcom, the uh, the variety show. You know the one that The Simpsons made fun of? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love all those variety shows, especially Sears. No kidding. <laughs> I know, it surprises no one. 
So while this film was forgotten for years, it eventually came back and is now seen as a classic amongst a certain subset of weirdos, of which... I'm one. Yeah. He's trying really hard to say politely that it's me. Cheryl is exclusively responsible for the reappraisal of Phantom of the Paradise. You know what? If there's one thing I can do in my life, and that is just setting this movie up for future success and possibly a remake, I'm all for it. Please reboot this movie. Even if it's just the CW, then you can draw more fans back to the original and just be like, what? Why does this exist? It's an enigma for a generation. Now, aside from Cheryl, the people who are the biggest fans of this in the noteworthy sense are the electronic dance group Daft Punk. They actually met each other through the film's fandom, and they saw the movie together over 20 times. If you know anything about Daft Punk, you know that they perform and make all of their public appearances dressed as robots. They base their helmets off of the owl helmet. And when they were at the very apex of their popularity in 2010 and they could get anyone they wanted to to jam with them, they brought in Paul Williams to sing the uh, vocal parts on Touch. Except at the beginning, they had Fan of the Paradise screechy noises before he came on. And that song just has electronic beats and, and fake horns and real horns and a children's choir and a string section. And it's so overblown and over the top. And I love that song so much. And I mean, if if that doesn't warm you right down to like the very like cockles of your heart, there's something seriously wrong with you as a person. Go check in with your doctor. And another person who's really into this film is Guillermo del Toro, unsurprisingly. Of course that he loves this movie. I was going to bring that up, but I cannot. I just, I'm so afraid of ruining that man's name. It's such a pretty poetic name and it can't come out of my mouth, especially not after like half a bottle of wine. He's been trying for years to stage a Phantom of the Paradise musical on Broadway. However, Del Toro is almost ready to join the ranks of Terry Gilliam and Orson Welles in directors who are more famous for the projects that they can't get off the ground than the ones that actually get made. Oh, that's so sad. I mean, he's the one who did the, um, he directed that Simpsons um, Treehouse of Horrors that had the fandom in it, right? Yes, yes. I was about to mention Guillermo del Toro directed like an opening sequence for or, uh, the Simpsons Halloween special that made a whole bunch of references to a whole bunch of various horror movies. The last bit is Pan's Labyrinth because that's a Del Toro film. But you know, for the part where Lisa is playing her saxophone in the school and ducks out the door, everyone else in that room is a cinematic fan of the opera, and the fan of the paradise is the music teacher. And he's the focal shot as the scene pivots, so. He gets, like, the most notice, as he deserves. Now it's time to talk about Phantom Palooza, which is held in Winnipeg. Which breaks my heart, because I never knew about this, and I would have, I mean, I, I arguably would not have gone. But I would have spent money. I would have given them money just to be there. Yeah, the first one that they had in 2005 was attended by both Graham and Finley. Uh, the next year... Like, almost everybody in the cast who was still around showed up, and it concluded with a Paul Williams concert. My heart is breaking! Ah! I bet it's online somewhere. I'll have to cyberstalk it. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, also, Beef's uh, electrocution scene is directly referenced in the indie horror film Romeo's Distress from 2017. Alright, and now it's time for the thematic parts. Now, if anyone talks about the fan of the paradise, one of the first things that they bring up is the idea that it's the satirization of the music industry, which, yeah, it's venal and corrupt, but it also has this interesting surreal element of, is this how Brian De Palma thinks that the music industry works? Okay. 
okay. Like, yeah, no, I see what you're saying there. But but I also definitely see the themes in it. Because, like, you've got the... One of the characters' names is literally Phoenix. Christine's name got changed to Phoenix. And then you've got the Juicy Fruits, who are the beach bubs, who are the undeads. It's the same guys over and over again. So, like, some of the themes are there. And another thing that comes up in that, and also is brought up, arguably, in both Tommy and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, is sort of the splintering of uh, rock and roll music that was happening in the late 60s, early 70s. I mean, throughout the 50s and most of the 60s, rock was a lot more of a monolith, but then, like, glam rock came along, and then punk and metal, and I don't want to compare it to the Protestant Reformation, because that feels kind of pretentious, (laughs) but it kind of is because the whole like institute of rock music has just been sort of splintering into tinier and tinier factions until hip-hop and electronic pop music just swallowed it entirely 10 years ago or so. When we talk to our nephew about this, we're going to talk about the great rock schism of the 1960s. Uh, But no, you're not wrong. There's a whole scene that sort of um, illustrates that when they're inside the giant record that is also a table and the camera pans around it, you see the different um, elements of rock at the time where he's trying to find his perfect sound to replace phoenix or his imperfect sound because only he can be perfection yeah there's like this is crosby stills and nash type group and then they have uh this trio of motown singers and there's the mamas and the papas kind of ladies jamming next to each or maybe they're like more like the osmonds yeah, I would say a little column A, a little column B. And then you have these archetypes of various people that we associate with the music industry, mostly because of showbiz musicals, you know, Swan being the corrupt, manipulative uh, executive, Winslow, the tortured artist who has a callous disregard for people who can't realize his vision and a total stubbornness when it comes to collaboration. And the, the opening bit where you're first getting to know Winslow, Philbin is like, hey, we're going to have the Juicy Fruit singer song because he thinks that's going to win him over. And then he just pushes him against the wall and screams, no one except me can sing my music. Well, um, and on multiple points, like part of the reason he goes into his rampage later in the movie is and performs his miraculous bop escape from the prison from Sing Sing is because the Juicy Fruits, which are very clearly the Beach Boys, start singing his music. So this man clearly just does not enjoy harmonies. The rampage was always in Winslow. He just needed the Juicy Fruits to set it free. Yeah, and another thing that this film buries in its subtext is that the audience seems to have a callous disregard for the people who make the entertainment that enhances their lives. They don't really care about how the sausage gets made as long as they get it. You know, they're they're chanting beef, 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 beef as his corpse is being loaded onto an ambulance via stretcher. And, you know, in the last scene where, like, everyone is getting stabbed to death, the audience is just sort of just grooving along with it. And as you said, uh, those people were part of a cattle call and they had no idea what was going on except, you know, act like you're amped up. Yep, they were stealing props and sort of dancing around with them and looking, if you watch the movie, they're looking around kind of confused but really excited at the same time because they're like, woo, I'm in a movie! They're very much that guy, but it's a room of like maybe, what, 300 people, but all being that guy? It's a delight. 
And another thing I wanted to touch upon was uh, drug abuse, which even though this is the 70s and, you know, the drug war was hadn't been started yet, we're, we're starting to feel some burnout. A big part of the subtext of this film is the fact that Swan keeps using pills as a means of controlling people. Not only that, but uh, one of the juicy fruits are given a pill when he doesn't want to take the stage with the car bomb. Yep, and even in the introduction to Swan's corrupt business and his business partner, whose name I can never remember, the meatloaf-looking gentleman who wears denim on denim. Philbin. Philbin, yeah. He's talking about how he's in love with a girl that he managed to corrupt through fame and drugs. Just right from the beginning there, like, drugs are bad, but also we're going to show you nothing but multivitamins as the narcotic substances for this film. Yes, one offers you breakfast, which is just a briefcase that he gets stuffed with pills. I mean, the man's a professional. If he's going to give you drugs, they're going to be in a very swanky briefcase. I mean, he dresses like a divorcee. He knows what he's about. Now, getting back to touching upon film history, Brian De Palma is almost, um, his Hitchcock obsession is a punchline at this point. If you're talking about which of his films is the most Hitchcockian, anything he made in the first 15 years of his career as a director is a contender. Personally, I think it's Sisters, but it could be any of them. Fan of the Paradise is not an exception, as I mentioned before, you know, the shower scene, a plunger instead of a knife. But um, a more subtle nod is that the main character in this film have bird names, all of them. That's true. I never noticed that. And that is an indirect reference to Psycho, because the main protagonist in Psycho has a bird name, and then she goes to the hotel, run by Norman Bates, and he has these stuffed birds everywhere. This guy kills birds, and then he displays them later for his amusement. Get out of there. Maybe he just finds dead birds. I can't, I can't argue with him. And Swan's record label logo is a dead bird. So, hey, you two bird people, trust Swan, and he'll sign you to his dead bird record label where you'll become a dead bird. I mean, there's no problem there. That's that's not a that's not an unhealthy term. It's fine. And the last thing I wanted to break down into, I don't always get into the technical aspects of the filmmaking, but I think for this one, it matters. Uh, Brian De Palma is a very distinctive filmmaker, and you know, like all of the rest of the movie brats, he is part of a new generation that looked at film in a very distinctive way. He looked at it in a very baby boomer way. The first director is your John Ford, your Alfred Hitchcocks. Uh, a lot of them were theater directors who got into filmmaking for the money, and they didn't necessarily see themselves as artists first and foremost they probably saw themselves as populist entertainers with the noteworthy exceptions of your occasional orson welles or charlie chaplin the movie brats coppola scorsese spielberg lucas they saw themselves as artistes who were making things that were just as important as Picasso or Beethoven or whatever highfalutin people you would do. And De Palma approached this with an appreciation of film history and absorbing the lessons of auteur theory, which dictated that the director was the principal author of the film and that the best directors are the most distinctive and the ones that call the most attention to their own directing. So there's quite a bit of that. Uh, De Palma loves framing uh, his characters against backgrounds and Dutch angles, and there's a whole lot of that in that. If you're, if you're doing your, your Brian De Palma a bingo card that's a big old notch <laughs> with fan of the paradise and he likes long takes he likes big show off 360 degree camera pans especially when someone's dying yep yep yeah, he uses slow-mo, he, he does handheld cameras from the ca from the perspective of the characters and themselves. And that weird, like, let's just speed up one area to add sort of, like, comedy, but it's just one tiny awkward one. 
Yeah, a bit of that. There's not so much slow-mo. He, he likes slow-mo elsewhere, but the most De Palma of De Palma things is the split screen, which he lives from Hitchcock, but he uses it so often that it's now considered a 1970s paranoid conspiracy thriller film type of approach. It first comes up with the uh, juicy fruit car bomb scene where, where they're the beach bombs, but, you know, also when uh, Winslow discovers that Swan uh, was corrupted by the devil and just anything where he wants to feed you information from various sources simultaneously. And there's a little bit of that in the concluding montage where this light funk music is played as uh, Winslow is attempting to stop the sniper from killing Phoenix and he's slowly assembling a sniper rifle like the Manchurian candidate. <laughs> Well, you gotta you gotta add the dramatic tension to that scene where that one man alone is trying to uh, balance off against a room of three hundred people that don't quite know what they're doing. I was very amused though when you mentioned the Hitchcock um, aspects of it because I didn't know about that. All I know about Hitchcock is the whole bomb under the table uh, dramatic tension thing. And they literally do that with a bomb in a car that the audience gets to see split screen gets put in the car. And then the other side of the split screen, you see them just sort of sitting on it. So that's actually really cute now that you break that down. Yeah, De Palma doesn't hide his sources. He, he His heart is right on his sleeve. <laughs> Or his split screen. Or his split screen. All right, well, that covers just about everything in my notes. Is there Were there any other aspects of the film that you wanted to bring up before we conclude? Yes. I wish I had taken better notes during the movie, because the scene where Winslow gets framed by the cop, they mention a name for his house, and I can't remember what it is. My best idea was it was a Swanshin. Yeah, I was about to say, what, was it a portmanteau or was it a swanchin? I think it was, a, it might have been something more clever than that. It's the only time they say it. It's a throwaway line, and I'm pretty sure it's an ad lib, but I thought it was really cute. And what struck me about that scene is that, like, Winslow gets, like, maybe a, a couple grams of heroin planted on him, and that's enough for a life sentence, which, you know, back in those days, drug possession got you, like, one year max in prison. However, that's not super that much of a plot hole, because less than 10 years later, the war on drugs would start, and then, yes, you could plausibly be thrown in prison for life for having a comically small amount of drugs on you, although not necessarily if you're white. Also, yeah, arguably, the only people that were, like, in positions of authority were minorities in that movie. Both of the police officers were black, and they were busting um, a random guy, white guy outside of some other random white guy's building for drug possession and planting drugs on him. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, they were smiling and cracking jokes while they were telling him that he had drugs on him while they were planting the drugs in his purse. Yeah, I know, right? A couple other things that I thought were really cute aspects of the movie were that they sent him to Sing Sing. It was very subtle. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes from this movie is the opening to the Juicy Fruits doing their version of Winslow's song, where they just start off with carburetors, man. Everything I've read about this movie, that's like a favorite of the people that uh, wrote the music, like Paul Williams, uh, of the director. They just really lean into that. They're like, yeah, that's really what we were trying to get to. Carburetors, man. One thing that I forgot to br bring up about the, the film soundtrack, I think it's interesting that the very first song that you hear from in the film is the Juicy Fruits doing a song about a professional singer who dies for his art. So 
it's an operatic overture for the actual story of the film. It's a metatextual comment on the movie. Actually, and being your sister, it's fun to lean into this one. He dies for his sister and the faith in the American people to save her life. That if he commits suicide, they'll somehow manage to save her from being somehow sick. She's not really important in the Eddie song, but uh, as as your sister here, I'm going to lean into that one. You're supposed to die to save your sister. And you're right. I also have floppy hair and glasses. Oh, no. <laughs> it's true. Um, I don't know how to build an owl mask. I will never not see a figure like Winslow and not immediately think of my brother when he was an awkward teenager. Oh, boy. It's just immediately just right to my heart. I'm sold 100%. I mean, this is cringe for me. I'm not saying you're wrong, but it is cringe for me. <laughs> We went over Winslow's delightful rampage, Winslow's inability to not be duped repeatedly, no matter how intelligent he is in the movie. He's just a precious little innocent baby and will get wrapped up in any contract. He is very credulous. It's just, a, I mean, in his, to his credit, his head had just been crushed by a record press. So maybe he was having a hard time reading with his one eye and half a brain, but I thought it was still pretty adorable. He was still given like a 700 page contract and then allowed to breeze through it for like 20 seconds before being compelled to sign it in blood. It was written in five inch calligraphy on each page. If they had like shrunk that down to the appropriate, it felt like somebody who had to turn in an essay and their teacher didn't specify what font it was supposed to be. So they're like, yeah, okay, let's up this up to like font size 24. And suddenly I've got my 500 page uh, qualification that you were looking for. Doctorate denied. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to touch on was Swan's face at the end of the movie. I still genuinely don't understand when the phoenix flies down and removes the metal mask from his face and all of a sudden there's just like this weird, melted, bloody, pussy thing underneath. I genuinely don't understand what they were getting at. Like if it was the fire exposure on the film supposed to be reflecting on his face, if that's what they think old people look like. When earlier in the movie, like five minutes ago, you met his girlfriend from high school who was probably, what, 40 at most? And she didn't have a melty face. What do you? What are your opinions on the, the face masking scene? I was under the impression that the burning film stop was the reason that Bond's face looked like that, or Brian De Palma thought it looked cool. One of those. I'm going to lean into that just along the same lines as I lean into the um, terrifying background dancers, the wild raven women who are wearing very awkward feathers and their feather headdresses. And Winslow stabs Swan with one of those, with one of their beak masks. Yep, and then just randomly that dude with the Hawaiian shirt picks it up, and like a second later the camera cuts back to him, he's covered in blood. No explanation for why. It's a delight. <laughs> um, but those were pretty much all of my notes. Like, you touched on Rocky Horror. I know that this came out a little bit after Rocky Horror. Like they were A little before. To, it was a little before? Rocky Horror is the next year. Oh my gosh, I've always been told that they were trying to ride on Rocky Horror's coattails. That's so sad. No, Rocky Horror flopped too. 
I have been startled speechless by this. I knew I've known it as nothing but a cult classic. So I'm like, no, it's how little theaters get money. Oh, yeah. So it probably was not expensive. Yeah, that's how it became a midnight movie screening thing that could get it cheap. Well, at least you're going to tell me that Tommy didn't do well financially. No, Tommy was successful. That, that, that's why they made a Quadrophenia movie, because Tommy did okay. Tommy, the, the movie where the woman is just bathing in shag carpets and beans. People like The Who. Well, my faith in humanity is broken. Why would they make a Quadrophenia movie if Tommy didn't do well? I don't know what that is. That's the Who's other rock opera. I don't know what that is. No, I just genuinely, I know for rock operas, I know of Phantom of the Paradise, which nobody knows about. I know of Tommy, which I wanted so desperately to enjoy. And I feel like I've betrayed our father by hating it as much as I do. And I genuinely like every musician in that movie. That's the worst part. But, um... After that, it's Green Day. Like, that's where it goes for me. There's just three. There's only three on the radar. I'm like a broken submarine, just lost in the ocean. And on that note, I believe we can bid you good night. <laughs> this was fun. Yes, join us next time, everyone. Woo!